Welcome to Essential Salt, a podcast that brings you stories reported on by students at the Salt Institute for Documentary Studies. This series is produced by Maine Public in partnership with Salt. I'm your host, Lucy Suchek. In each episode of Essential Salt, we'll bring you stories that go beyond the headlines to capture something true, something unexpected, something essential about the state of Maine and the people who live here. Let's get started. Mysteries abound in Maine, from those in our mind and memory to those in the deep, dark woods. In this episode, we'll explore the unsure, unsolved, and unbelievable things that creep in the dark. We'll begin with the mysteries rooted in the terrestrial and make our way further and further away from our social comfort zone. In all these stories, the original producers approach potentially delicate or unlikely topics with even-handed context and validation. Still, it helps to keep an open mind. Episode 5, What Lurks in the Dark Lauren Coleman is arguably the most respected voice in cryptozoology. What is cryptozoology, you might ask? It's the study of animals that are not yet proven to be real. Emphasis on yet. Lauren began studying folklore and zoology as a kid, as radio producer and creator of this story, Ari Erlbaum, discovered in 2015. Over time, Lauren crafted a thoughtful methodology of interpreting cryptid claims, all the while amassing an impressive collection of items to display in his International Cryptozoology Museum. In Ari's interview with Lauren, we don't find someone proving Bigfoot exists against all odds, but someone willing to bet on the cryptids that might exist. When Lauren Coleman was 11 years old, he watched a Japanese monster movie. Half Human is the fantastic motion picture record of the search for the mountain creature of Asia, whose name has become a symbol of terror and mystery, the abominable snowman. The next day at school, he asked his teachers about the Yeti. And they gave me three answers. They don't exist. Get back to your schoolwork. Leave me alone. So that encouraged me to do my own research. 57 years later, he's still researching. This is a mole taken from the footprint found outside the cabin door. I've slept in a cabin in the Trinity Alps where there was Bigfoot sightings where they would uh, take the antenna on cars and break them off. And I put out peanut butter and hoped that something would come, and it didn't come. Lauren's research has been a constant in his life. When he was 12, he started writing letters back and forth with scientists and monster hunters. In college, he studied anthropology and zoology. He searched for grains of truth in folklore and interviewed countless witnesses. It's always been cryptozoology as my out, my, my way to really get in touch with how much I love animals, how much I love mysteries, how much I think there's really unknown in this world. Cryptozoology is the study of cryptids, animals that haven't been proven by science to exist. The most famous cryptids are Bigfoots, Yetis, and the Loch Ness Monster. Cryptozoologists take a scientific approach to this tabloid material. They seek proof that cryptids are real. By measuring the width, the length, the depth of the print, their composite picture described the species as being nine feet tall and weighing around 1,800 pounds. During the Victorian times, the main way of proving that a fantastic beast, a creature, a cryptid actually existed was to go out and shoot one. That really is in disfavor nowadays because you might actually be shooting one of the last four or five uh, 
most of the cryptids we think have very small breeding populations. Lauren is now one of the world's most prominent cryptozoologists. He's gone on cryptid-finding expeditions, written books, and appeared on TV shows. Twelve years ago, he opened the International Cryptozoology Museum in Portland, Maine. So you have Yeti material in here. You have the Orang Pindek from Sumatra, a skunk ape, Bigfoot Sasquatch. In the museum, there are hairs, fecal samples, and casts of footprints in glass display cases. And then down at the end, you have lake monsters, sea serpents, mystery cats. You go a little swing around, and you'll see the Mapaguari, which are reports from South America. Artist impressions and fake taxidermies are stacked on shelves. They depict bizarre-looking cryptids of all types. There you can actually see a dart gun that was used in the 50s to uh, try to uh, get one of the Bigfoot. Amy and Alan Lewis are visitors to the museum from Rhode Island. They are here for their wedding anniversary. From an archival standpoint, that's actually really impressive that they have the actual real... I work in a library, so thinking about just in general the collection of ephemera, it's really... it's actually really impressive. They soon find themselves face-to-face with the Bigfoot. I understand why it says don't touch the fingers because I really want to. Or you have to get my picture before we go. Oh, yeah, clearly. I really want to touch that hand. No. Okay. You can. Don't touch the hand. Okay, so you're probably wondering, Bigfoots, sea monsters, aren't those just the stuff of cheesy B-movies? Lauren says that they may exist, but he's pretty sure they're not part of an extraterrestrial government mind control scheme or anything like that. What happens is that stories get exaggerated because that's what humans do with the unknown. This is the claw that reaches out to kill. He tries to keep things scientific. He won't even start investigating sightings or evidence until he does what he calls a psychosocial background check. We're always very cautious of true believers that every piece of evidence they find is a Bigfoot, a monster. We talk to their relatives, their parents, people they work with, police departments in some town, and you can very quickly find out, oh, they've been telling tall tales for their whole life, they uh, have a mental health problem, or they're really credible. Lauren is also wary of people on the other end of the spectrum. Debunkers. Debunkers come into any situation. It may be a good piece of evidence, but they'll throw it out because they don't, quote-unquote, believe in the cryptid. Lauren points out that cryptozoology has been successful in the past. The mountain gorilla, the okapi, a giant squid, all of those used to be cryptids. All of them used to be part of cryptozoology, and then they became part of zoology. For the mountain gorilla, for instance, there were tales for over 60 years of these giant creatures, almost like King Kong-like beasts that would go around squeezing to death native women and killing explorers. Slowly... People started trying to hunt the mountain gorilla down, and then it was shot there in the the volcanic valleys of uh, Kenya. Lauren doesn't expect the celebrity cryptids to be found anytime soon. His bets are on a hominid called the Orang Pendek. Which is a little three-and-a-half feet tall creature in Indonesia, and it's a creature that's been seen often enough. There's good evidence of footprints. There's hair samples and it actually is in a contained enough area where there's other kinds of creatures that are pretty rare that have been seen and known about. Creatures like the Orang Pendek hold the same excitement for Lauren that the Yeti did when he was 11. 
I keep very young by being in this field. There's new reports coming in. There's new people to meet. There's new researchers that come through here. So it's always changing. This is the story of four college art students, one camping trip in Maine's Allagash Wilderness, and over a decade of psychological confusion. What could have caused Jack Weiner to subconsciously transform his penchant for landscape painting into an obsession with weird mathematical paper structures? What pushed his brother Jim to begin experiencing wild dreams over 10 years after suppressing that camping trip? It wasn't until a psychiatrist asked him if his experience might be linked to an alien abduction that the men really began to process what had happened to them all those years ago. In 2009, oral historian Molly Graham interviewed the men, now known as the Allagash Four. It was in the summer of 1976 when Jack decided to go on a fishing trip. He took his twin brother Jim and their friends Chuck Rack and Charlie Foltz. They piled themselves and two weeks' worth of camping gear in a green Chevy Vega and headed north. Charlie Foltz. We were literally like sardines packed in there. On their fourth night of the trip, they set up camp on Eagle Lake, then built the fire to act as a beacon while they tried to catch their supper in the dark. Jack Weiner. We built that thing to last four or five hours. We figured we'd be out fishing for quite a while. And it was pitch black that night, not a whisper of the moon at all. We had our lines out, and we were sitting there just enjoying the night. Again, Charlie Foltz. And then Chuck Rack said, what the blank is that? Well, we all turned in the direction that Chuck was at, and I saw this light. It was so big and so bright, and it was just slowly lifting up out of the trees, and it didn't make a sound. I would estimate it was as big in diameter as a tractor-trailer truck is long. It was about the size of a two-and-a-half-story house, completely spherical in shape. Charlie Foltz goes, well, we don't know what it is, so why don't we signal it with a flashlight and see if it does anything? The instant that I did that, this sphere of light responded by sending a shaft of light straight down that hit the water's edge and started coming across the water toward us. We were just surrounded in this light. And then the next thing I remembered is uh, we were standing on the beach. We were in shock and this thing was hovering right in front of us. It didn't whir, it didn't buzz, it didn't hiss. And then all of a sudden, it just went And then it seemed to just implode on itself that fast. As fast as you could snap your fingers, it was gone into the stars. After the thing disappeared, they were standing on the beach in shock. The fire they built to last hours had burnt out in the 30 minutes they believed they were gone. At first, they didn't talk about what they had seen. Instead, they went straight to bed. The next morning, they felt re-energized. 
And uh, we were all pumped and excited about it. You know, wow, my God, that was a UFO. Holy crap, you know. We reported it to one ranger who gave us the most uncomfortable stare that you would ever want to encounter. He goes, well, boys, I don't know what you've been putting in that pipe you're smoking, but I'd lay off it for a while. When they got back to Boston, they told all their friends, but no one believed them. And uh, we kept telling people, why would we make this up? I mean, why would we make up a story that no one's going to believe? You know, I mean, that's it just, it really did happen. Eventually, they stopped telling people because no one believed them. They clammed up and went on with their lives. They graduated from college, got married, and found jobs. Then 10 years went by and things changed. They say their personalities were overtaken by compulsive behaviors. They had crazy nightmares. Their art was unrecognizable. Before the trip to the Allagash, Jack painted landscapes and cityscapes. After, he was obsessed with math and started constructing unusual paper sculptures. It was obsessive behavior that was totally unlike anything I was doing before. It changed my artwork. The minute I got back, I stopped painting. I stopped using color. And it was just this continuing quest for something that I didn't know what it was. In 1987, Jack's brother began seeing a psychiatrist and talked about the nightmares he was having. His psychiatrist said, geez, Jim, you know, this is really strange stuff. You know, this sounds like, you know, UFO or alien, are these aliens? His psychiatrist says to him, well, eh, probably not. I mean, it's not like you've ever seen a UFO or anything, right? And Jim's like, well, you know, actually I have. And so he told his psychiatrist about the Allagash sighting. And his psychiatrist said, have you ever heard of alien abduction, Jim? None of them had ever thought they'd been abducted by aliens. They just thought they had seen a UFO. That idea, that they had been abducted, changed everything. Jim's therapist recommended that Jim, Jack, Chuck, and Charlie see a hypnotist to uncover the source of their strange behavior in similar nightmares. They were introduced to Tony Constantino, a professional hypnotist, in 1989. In hypnosis, this deep relaxation, for whatever reason, the unconscious, which is where all these things are stored, seems to come to the surface, and one can remember things, okay? This is hypnosis session number one for Charlie Foltz. The date is May 20th, 1989. In attendance are myself, Ray Fowler, Director of Investigations from UFON, UFON hypnosis consultant, Tony Constantino, and the witness... Again, Charlie Foltz. And I walked in and I just basically told him about what I remembered from that night. Tony had the guys hypnotically regressed. They talked as if they were reliving that night on the Allagash 13 years earlier. It's right there. They were stunned. It's looking at me. How does it look at you? It has no mouth. The sighting on the Allagash had actually been an elaborate alien abduction experience. It was like almond shape sort of egg-shaped. They have a long, thin neck, like a girl. Delicate. The beings themselves, Slight I believe they describe them as the typical, the typical gray. I want to get out. I want to get back in a canoe. By the time I was done working with these four individuals, 
I felt what I can only describe as genuine terror because I believed them. After hypnosis, they had an explanation for their strange dreams and bizarre behavior, but their story had changed. They hadn't just seen something in the sky, they were abducted by it. The hypnosis was proof to them that this was real, so they started telling people again. And although the story changed, the reaction didn't. A lot of people do think you're nuts, you know, when you tell them this, and people will just say, you know, stay away from my kids, or, you know, I don't want you around my kids, or you're crazy, or you're delusional, or, you know, what have you been smoking, or whatever, you know. 20 years later, the abduction is still a big deal. And although they are shunned by many, they have achieved international notoriety as the Allagash Four. A book has been written about their experience. They've been on Unsolved Mysteries and The Joan Rivers Show. They found a community of believers and other abductees. And Jack says he's still visited by aliens. Jack and Charlie say they're like Galileo. When he first said the Earth revolved around the sun, no one believed him. We do not live on a flat world. We do not have the sun revolving around us. And these were all ancient beliefs that, when challenged, were met with disbelief and ridicule, things that I've experienced myself. People will come around, but they're not waiting. They know it's true, and it's changed them for the better. There's a couple of ways that I'm different, I believe, because of that experience. One of the things is when I look at the night sky, I don't wonder if there's life out there besides life here. I know there is. Producer Molly Graham and fellow SALT graduate Keith Lane have created an animated version of this story, which you can learn more about at earthlingthefilm.com. And now for our final story. Have you ever noticed that when one person brings up a ghost story, someone always has their own tale to tell in response? When SALT student Kalila Holt began investigating paranormal activity and ghost encounters in 2015, this was just one of her observations. Kalila met with several members of the Maine-based group Spirits Left Behind for her research. Before meeting with Deborah at Spirits Left Behind, Kalila was hesitant to make a connection between the anxiety she felt in her childhood home and something one might call paranormal. But as we hear in this story, there may have been a link between the two that Kalila would have never realized on her own. For me, this story really starts about a decade ago in a house in Arkansas. There were always cicadas screeching outside, and a lot of times, my family, we were screeching inside. I felt panicked and on edge every time I went in that house. But right now, I'm at the Cutnick Cliffs Barber Shop in Standish, Maine. Just trimmed all the way around. Whatever you think looks good. I'm not here to get my hair cut. I'm here to talk about ghosts. People will call us when they feel like their home, their business, or their property is haunted. 
Donna is the founder of Spirits Left Behind, a paranormal research team. There are five women on the team, and three of them are also hairdressers. They all have the Spirits Left Behind logo taped up on their mirrors. It's a picture of an angel with her head down. I'd say seven out of ten clients that notice that we advertise here, they bring it up. They either experience something themselves when they're younger or now, or they know somebody. And I actually see this happen. A guy comes in for a trim, and he wants to know why I'm sitting around with a microphone. When Donna explains, he starts telling a story about a spirit at his friend's inn. Maybe you don't believe in ghosts. I don't know if I do. When I talk to my friends about reporting this story, I can feel myself getting weirdly defensive. But when the women of spirits left behind bring it up, when I know they won't think I'm crazy. So what made you think you wanted to do a little documentary on paranormal? Back to junior high. My dad lived in that house in Arkansas, along with my stepmom and my two siblings. And whenever I was in there, I felt so uneasy. I had trouble sleeping. One night, I made everyone leave because I was seized by this panic that something terrible was going to happen. So whatever, right? I felt uneasy in a house, big deal. At the time, I didn't really think it was paranormal at all. I thought I was just a generally anxious, unhappy kid. I didn't leave my room much, and when I did, it was mostly just to argue with my family about whether I could put my feet on the couch. But what's weird is that even though we didn't talk about it at the time, I wasn't the only one who felt uneasy. So I called my stepmom and my little sister to see what they remembered about the house. I don't really remember too much because I was little, but I do remember the feeling of like, knowing that I was alone, but not really, like, feeling like I was alone. What I remember from the Arkansas house is kind of that feeling, too, like Jeffy's talking about. Like, I'd wake up in the middle of the night and feel like I wasn't alone. And just like all those customers at the barbershop, once I mention the paranormal, my family starts talking about all this unrelated weird stuff that's happened to them over the years. Totally unprompted. I went up to my room at about, like, dusk. And there was like a little girl just playing in my room. Pretty much on a weekly basis, like books fall off the shelf, just randomly. Back then I didn't know paranormal investigations existed. In between haircuts, Donna and Leanne, one of the other researchers, talked me through what an investigation would look like. When we do go into these investigations, we try to debunk. That is, they want to make sure the activity isn't just something normal in the house. Electrical problems, yeah. plumbing problems. Or somebody's stomach making a noise, which happens a lot. The women get most of their evidence on their audio recorders. Voices too quiet to hear without the volume cranked up. Those are called EVPs, electronic voice phenomenon. Skeptics say these voices are just a hoax, or else that people are interpreting voices in what's really just random background noise. Donna plays me a lot of EVPs. Some of them seem like wishful thinking. It almost sounds like, like a dog barking or something to me. Do you hear Amorites? Hmm? Them saying Amorites? Is that what it is? But some of them are just so clear, like this one. My turn to be It goes fast, so I'll play it a few more times. According to Spirits Left Behind, this is the voice of a little girl spirit. She's saying, it's my turn to feed them. My turn to feed that one is from the house where Amy Morabito lives with her daughter, Ricky. Ricky's a teenager. She feels like their house is haunted and she's on edge. 
but unlike me, she didn't keep quiet about it. I actually screamed a lot. <laughs> I got nervous. I got scared. And Ricky says after a while, something started grabbing her in her sleep. I wouldn't feel safe in my room. I'd have to shut like all my doors and leave my lights on everything. Eventually, Ricky refused to sleep in her room. That's when her mom, Amy, called Spirits Left Behind to investigate. This is where we did most of the investigation. Bev was sitting against this wall. I think it was Leanne was over there. And then Donna was just sitting right over in that area. The investigation actually didn't help Ricky much. She's still freaked out. But Amy feels better. Because I know I'm not crazy. Now, sometimes she even talks to the spirits when she's alone. They want to stay, they can stay. It doesn't bother me. It's actually quite comforting to know somebody's here. No one in Amy and Ricky's family doubts that something paranormal is at play, but that's not always the case. Deborah is one of the two members of Spirits Left Behind that's not a hairdresser. She's soft-spoken and moves around carefully. It's the first nice day in ages, so we sit on her sun porch. She's leaning on a pillow that has a seahorse stitched on it with sequins. Deborah's father didn't believe in ghosts, which she says was hard growing up. She just wishes more people were open to the possibilities. Don't believe everything, but do your own research because it is crazy what there really is out there and you can listen and look at our evidence and think, and, oh my gosh. Deborah first started doing her research because when she was a kid, I saw our apparitions. It's not something you can talk about out in public. Most of my friends don't know very much about what I've experienced or what I've gone through. Deborah would be playing alone or doing her homework, and she says spirits used to tease her, pull her hair, turn the sink on. She remembers seeing one woman a lot, wearing a Victorian sleep bonnet. Deborah tells me she had seances with her friends. Typical kid stuff, right? Only, she says, strange things would actually happen. There was one particularly bad experience with a Ouija board. We couldn't get out my door that had no locks on it. My bed was shaking, my lights would flick. And that's actually when I became religious. So after that, and I was young, I was probably at that point 13, um, I started going to church with my girlfriend. And I actually got rid of whatever was in my room on my own, from praying, reading, reading the Bible. I know it sounds outlandish, but it happened. Since then, most of her run-ins with the paranormal have been positive. And because of her experiences growing up, Deborah feels a connection to children who are being haunted. Sometimes she takes the kids aside and explains the hauntings. And you, you can feel it. You can feel them just, the relief come off of them. Deborah says sometimes, if a child or a teenager is in a bad situation, they can even be the one causing the activity. That's called a poltergeist haunting. A living person making the things happen because they're so emotional or they're depressed or they're drained. According to Deborah, these types of hauntings particularly affect teenage girls. They get so anxious that objects move on their own. Doors slam. You feel like you need to let people know that it's not always something paranormal too and that you really ought to go seek other other people just to make sure that you're okay. We do have to sometimes speak up and say, have you ever gone to a counselor? It's really not our business or our job, but you feel bad. As I'm packing up my recording equipment, Deborah asks me the usual question. Have you ever experienced anything? 
I explained everything that happened in Arkansas, how anxious I was. She mentions the poltergeist hauntings again. So maybe it was you, she says. Maybe you were the one causing it. That was from producer Kalila Holt. Today, she's the senior producer for Jonathan Goldstein's Heavyweight from Gimlet Media. Essential Salt is a production of the Salt Institute for Documentary Studies at the Maine College of Art and Design in partnership with Maine Public. Essential Salt is produced by Lucy Santerre and me, Lucy Suchek. The role of contributing writer and editor is aptly filled by Isaac Kestenbaum, the director of The Salt. Our Essential Salt theme song is by Q Shop. You can find more music for storytelling at cue-shop.com. Find Essential Salt at mainpublic.org salt or wherever you get your podcasts, including YouTube. I'm Lucy Suchek. Thanks for listening.